This is The Brief with John Elmer, Justin Podor, and me, Nora Barrows-Friedman. On this episode, the blockade expands. Things really quickly grind to a halt after, you know, five, seven, and now we're looking at you know, pushing 10 days of these blockades, it is it is a crisis. It's not just a symbolic action. It's the ability to bring the economy to its knees. After the RCMP raided and dismantled the Wet'suwet'en roadblocks, blockades and occupations have spread across Canada in solidarity. And they're still growing. Hey guys, welcome back. Hi, Nora. Thanks, Nora. Hey guys. So we have a special broadcast this week. Episode one of The Brief tackled the Wet'suwet'en pipeline blockade that's happening in northern British Columbia. And in the week or so since the show was published, there has been some significant developments, extraordinary developments, in fact, that... um, I think we're going to focus on for this episode to keep the story going because the RCMP raid on Wet'suwet'en territory sparked solidarity actions of a nature and scope that Canada hasn't seen in a long, long time. So we're going to just get right into it. Let's go. The briefing. Last week, an RCMP raid on the Wet'suwet'en blockade and checkpoints in opposition to the pipeline, liquid natural gas pipeline running through their territory. It happened a bit sooner than people expected, but uh, militarized RCMP descended on the territory, moving up the road, dismantling the roadblocks at each stage through Wet'suwet'en territory, creating some important pictures that we'll discuss later on in the program. But the raid looked a lot like last year's raid, where RCMP units came in, dismantled the checkpoints. Uh, Solidarity actions have sprung up across Canada uh, in response, particularly, notably, the Tyendinaga Mohawk Territory um, around Belleville between Montreal and Toronto blocked freight and passenger rail transit between Canada's biggest rail hub. The travel and freight cargo was a key link to Canada and the United States and has taken Canada's supply chain and ground it uh, effectively to a halt over the past week. Rail blockades in Manitoba and in near Wet'suwet'en territory in New Hazleton have blocked traffic to the West Coast ports. There's also been port blockades in Vancouver, in Delta, in Prince Rupert in the north, and also on the East Coast in Halifax. Commuter train service was blocked in Vancouver on the commuter train corridor from Vancouver to Mission. And these actions have been faced with injunctions as they have, as as we talked about in episode one. The injunctions have been ignored by the blockaders. Government has also been targeted. The BC legislature uh, was blocked by protesters preventing MPPs from accessing the throne speech earlier in the week. The BC government got an injunction to protect the territory of the legislature for uh, meetings today. Carolyn Bennett, who's the Minister of Crown Indigenous Relations, needed an RCMP escort to get to her constituency office in Toronto. David Eby, the BC Attorney General's office, was occupied by protesters in Vancouver. Christian Friedland, the Deputy Prime Minister, was blocked from accessing a meeting at the City Hall in Halifax when she was there for a meeting. 
roads, bridges, highways, even the border in Aquasasne near Montreal, the American-Canadian border was blocked for most of the day, the first day of the RCMP raids. Earlier this week, the Canadian industry came together for a unified response and pushback. The CN chief said that the impact is being felt beyond Canada's borders of the rail blockades, harming, he said, Canada's reputation as a stable and viable supply chain partner. The Canadian Chamber of Commerce, for their part, came forward and said that Canada's supply chain is being severely damaged. The rail system infects the entire Canadian economy. They were calling on all levels of government and law enforcement to restore rail service. The Forest Products Association talked about massive shipments being blocked to the U.S. and to Asia. The Mining Association of Canada came up and said that their operations run like sands through the hourglass. And when the supply chain is broken like this, it's only a matter of time before the plants can't function. Transportation Minister Mark Garneau said that it was up to the provinces to make these injunctions effective by taking action, effectively setting the stage for these blockades to be broken up. But as we'll discuss in the discussion, there's not a lot that the government can do at this point. They have pressed the button and apparently activated a groundswell of opposition to their colonial project. And I think that at this point, it's pretty clear that they're not sure that pushing in and ending these blockades is going to do anything but cause a deeper issue. We will talk a little bit about the raid on Wet'suwet'en to begin with. Yeah, so the raid took place, I mean, it was a rolling, what people, what I've, from the reports I've read was a, a protracted raid. It took place over a series of days starting on February 6th and grinding along, partly because presumably the RCMP was unsure how violent they were going to be, the extent to which there would be witnesses or eyes or cameras, and how they were going to treat journalists. The whole treatment of journalists and the whole question of press freedom uh, has been really salient in this raid. A lot of journalists were detained, and they asked Jerome Turner from uh, Ricochet, was detained and he asked the RCMP, he said, you know, am I being detained? And the officer apparently told him, yeah, sort of, you know, you're not being charged with anything, but you can't go there and you can't go here, there, here and there being the directions where the RCMP were taking their actions. And the arrests that they made were of, you know, the, the indigenous traditional leaders at the, at the camp, the people who were running the Onestaten Healing Center, that John mentioned the dismantling of the sign and the taking down. So it's important to understand the women who were in the middle of a ceremony when the RCMP came to dismantle that particular camp at Anastaden, they were doing a ceremony for the missing and murdered Indigenous women. It's not like they did the ceremony to coincide with the raid. The murder and the kind of genocide or femicide, uh, some people have called it against Indigenous women in, in Canada, it is also, it's partly to do with these kinds of mining projects as people from all over are moved into these territories as uh, laborers and it's almost all men and they're, they have no roots in the community and they're, uh, the whole 
the whole project is dismantling the t- the kind of territorial relations and traditional livelihoods. And so people are displaced. And then you get into kind of transactional sex work, sexual exploitation of uh, women and the women and girls in the community by gas company workers or, you know, mining workers. And it's a story that you see in many parts of the world where mining companies go into small communities with relatively few protections. And it's one of the kind of many forms of exploitation and destruction of communities that takes place. And so this particular ceremony that they were doing, but also an action where they they put red dresses up in order to kind of honor and call attention to that issue, to the issue of the missing and murdered Indigenous women. This is something I've seen uh, on campus at York. Uh, lots of places across Canada have done it. And and so the fact that this this particular part of the protracted raid ended with coastal gas employees taking the red dresses down is, you know, it's incredibly, it's incredibly symbolic and it's incredibly kind of horrific. Towards the end of the protracted raid, the many of these actions that John has outlined started to get going. And and as Nora mentioned at the top, they've been, you know, they've been accelerating and they've been growing across Canada. And a couple of interesting things I've noticed that I wanted to call attention to just before we get further into our discussion. One is the responses from politicians and the politicians, Trudeau has been, Trudeau's the prime minister of Canada, particularly, uh, I mean, I don't know, I don't know, I can't think of an obvious adjective to describe it, but he's in Africa trying to drum up support for Canada to have a seat on the Security Council. As if and the, all these countries chasing seats on the UN Security Council, as if the seats, any seat on the Security Council matters except the U.S. is is already a whole other thing we can discuss some other time. But Trudeau mainly made a speech saying, you know, protest is fine, but you have to respect the rule of law. And uh, Horgan, the the premier of BC, he was kind of appealing to complexity. And he said, you know, this is a much more complex issue than people think. And so like, these are fairly weak arguments when it comes down to it. One's appealing to complexity and the other one is appealing to the rule of law. And there's things we'll say about the rule of law in a minute. But then at the federal NDP level, I noticed a tweet by Sven Robinson, who's a kind of left-wing member of parliament, and he was calling for an end to all taxpayer subsidies to the gas industry, respect for the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, and respect for the Delgamuk decision, which we talked about last episode. So if there are further kind of breaks within the, the ruling kind of political class of Canada... That's also a sign of how big these these protests are getting, and how how much opposition there is to uh, what you know what the gas company, what the province, ultimately what Canada and what the RCMP are doing here. So I think let, why don't we start our discussion there? You're listening to the Brief with John, Justin, and me, Nora. Follow us on Twitter at the Brief Pod. And now back to the brief. So the thing that's interesting about the blockades is that it does, it it clearly has gotten industry and government in a bit of a tizzy for a number of days. 
it seemed as though they were ultimately downplaying what was happening as though it was just a phase that would pass. But the reality is that the underpinning of this is that Canada's economy is prefaced on on the need. I mean, the, we could go back to the history of the rail line. The rail line was all was an instrument of colonization in Canada since its inception. It was pushing jurisdiction, moving troops, and of course the use of, in the extraction economy for Canada's you know founding myth as hewers of wood and drawers of water. The ability to move troops it was critical in putting down key indigenous uprisings. The Métis and Cree warriors in Saskatchewan 1885 were put down by the ability of the Canadian state to, for the first time, move influxes of troops into the territory. And of course, they ran these rail lines, just like they do the pipelines and the power lines, through Indigenous territories. And so the vulnerability of the system and the victims of colonization are intricately connected. Perfectly and overlapping. So, yeah, Perfectly overlapping. And so there's, there's a, a significant strain of the Canadian state that understands this vulnerability. And of course, it's like it's a supply chain vulnerability. And it's something that comes from this neoliberal order that uh, has been installed in the last generation. Essentially, it's an it's an on time, you know, they call it just in time parts or uh, on time shipping. And essentially, what it's done is it's moved warehouses onto wheels. So you have this combination of the vital state infrastructure, power, water, energy, and you also have the consumer and economic side of it with the, the warehouses on wheels. So the fact that the industry spoke up this week, didn't speak up at first, and then spoke up in a unified voice is an indication of, in some ways, the length of time that the supply chain can bend before it breaks. Because of course, like as the the Industrial Chemical Association said, you know, described it as that the chemicals that they're trying to send out on the rail lines, they can't travel any other way. They don't put them on trucks and send them. There's only one way for them to be delivered. And the entire sort of wider apparatus of the economy is based on that. So once those shipments aren't delivered, things really quickly grind to a halt after, you know, five, seven and now we're looking at, you know, pushing 10 days of these blockades. It is it is a crisis. It's not just a symbolic action. It's the ability to bring the economy to its knees. And Douglas Bland, who's a lieutenant colonel in the Canadian Forces and the chair of the defense study at Queen's University, wrote a book. He's been one of the guys trying to sort of sound the alarm about this for quite some time, for coming on 15 years now about the vulnerability of what he calls Canada's undefended and undefendable infrastructure. And he wrote a book that he turned into a fictional account, a, a barely fictionalized account, he calls it. It's called Uprising, and it's about an Indigenous, what it would take for an Indigenous uprising to take hold and what the Canadian state could do to stop it. And he talks about a very small number of people taking very little time to bring it down. And a lot of these actions that we've seen are very small numbers of people. It doesn't take thousands of people to block the rail line through Tyendinaga Mohawk territory because the rail lines are in their front yard and they were put there deliberately in their front yard. And so their ability to close down the rail line with a small number of dedicated people is significant. And this is something that is, you know, the reasons why this is an extraordinary set of circumstances. We've seen historically, these kind of actions take place, 
you know, in isolated situations, but the linking of all of these particular struggles and the ability for each of these struggles to interact with their own terrain in their own communities is a remarkable aspect of what's happening here. I reviewed that book, I think for Ricochet, and I, I found it politically very frustrating while uh, you know I appreciated what he was trying to do in terms of what he was describing militarily. The strategic element of it and the, the whole idea of Canada's reputation as a supply chain partner, it's, it's so... Um, it's another one of these things that's so symbolic of what Canada is, right? It's like Canada, you know, Trudeau is off trying to get a, a, a security council seat as if Canada would ever use that security council seat to do anything except whatever it is the U.S. wants. And now we're trying to establish our international credibility as a supply chain partner. I mean, there's only one supply chain partner that matters to Canada, right? I mean, this is, we're talking about taking indigenous uh, territories, ripping out the resources under them and sending them to the United States. That's, that's what all of this is about. And when they say we need to get our resources to market, it's about getting it to the States. And it's and the rule of law, like each of these tropes, um, the the rule of law. I, there's something I've been reading in the news about the RCMP raid and and the actions, and that there's this idea that there's a clash of legal systems between the indigenous legal system of the Wet'suwet'en nation and the Canadian legal system. That's not true. I really want to signal this is not a matter of a clash between two legal systems. This is a simple matter of the state not following its own laws. The, Canada's law is very clear. The law of the land is very clear that the Wet'suwet'en nation needs to be respected. And the only legal fig leaf that the province and the gas company have is the idea of an, this injunction, these injunctions that are granted by the provincial court, a lower level of law than the federal laws and the treaties. But this low level injunction is creating what, and there's the fascinating, you know, the fascinating legal aspect is this, what the RCMP are calling their exclusion zone. So the injunction apparently that was granted by the court says nobody can go 10 meters near any gas worker or any of their infrastructure. And so while they move, people have to stay away from them. And then the RCMP just decides they're going to reinterpret that to, to mean we're, we're excluding people in the camps, we're excluding the people that anyone we want to get rid of, we're going to expand and move the exclusion zone. And, you know, for people who are familiar with another contemporary colonial situation, namely Israel-Palestine, the Israelis used the concept of the closed military zone in exactly this way. It's like, oh, suddenly you're at home and suddenly you're home or you're going to bake, buy some bread or something and you're suddenly, in, you, congratulations, you're in a closed military zone, which overtook you. You didn't enter it. It decided that it's where you are. And uh, I just the the way that the law is is it's not it's not being used it's being circumvented, and that is so much of what Canada is about is like finger wagging about you know international law or the importance of the rule of law while simultaneously finding legal fictions and legal fig leaves to avoid following the laws and treaties that the state has in theory agreed to. 
I'm surprised that the U.S. government hasn't sent like Marines to break up the blockades. According to yeah, Bland. Yeah. According to Douglas Bland. That's Douglas Bland's fear, right? So Douglas yeah. Bland is a is a representative of the Canadian military, and the and his his politics of uprising, as Justin said, uh, are the politics are terrible in the book, but the underlying point is actually exactly what Nora said that Canada will by by not recognizing uh, indigenous sovereignty, um, Canada will you know put itself in a position to um, to have these blockades. Um, undermine Canadian sovereignty because, you know, as Justin said, we're a link in the supply chain. And if our link in the supply chain breaks down, the rest of the supply chain looks at us and says, what's going on with your link in the supply chain? And Douglas Bland's theory is that if Canada doesn't deal with the First Nations issue, Douglas Bland is in is in Kingston and the main power lines running from James Bay down to basically light up the entire eastern seaboard of the United States, New York City, comes from Canada. And so if this kind of intervention, economic, you know, this, the shut it down culture infects the ability of the supply chains in the United States to function properly, that the United States will essentially move across the border, you know, and usurp Canadian sovereignty because Canada as a, like essentially a resource colony for the United States puts the United States economic interests in jeopardy by sitting out these claims. So the, the claim that Douglas Bland is making for the Canadian forces is like Canadian forces ought to deal and the government ought to deal with this situation lest, as Nora said, the Marines come across the border and sort out the issue for themselves. That being said, the one place that they are blockading in one of the main reasons they aren't moving on the Tyndanaga Mohawks is because the Tyndanaga Mohawks aren't messing around. And the OPP and the Canadian state are not super interested in pushing into Tyndanaga Mohawk territory, in part because, as we mentioned in the first episode, the Canadian state sees the Mohawks as a legitimate insurgency. They will defend their community in a way that poses a significant problem to the Canadian military and Canadian uh, security services writ yeah. large. The Brief. Subscribe and get extra shows, transcripts, extended interviews, and behind the scenes on our Patreon page at patreon.com slash the brief. One other point. I have maybe two other points, really, that I wanted to make. One is, while one of the things that was most frustrating about Bland's book is the idea that once the Americans get here, you know, history stops or something. I mean, Canada is here as a subcontractor of the U.S. in, in a lot of ways, including solving its supply chain problems and its resource problems and its mining problems, you know, locally on the continent. So really, it, if the past 20 years of, of U.S. occupations in the Middle East has not been a lesson in like the U.S. Marines aren't magical. I don't know. I don't know what could what could be right. I mean, it's it doesn't just it doesn't just solve your problem. This is an economic problem. It's costing hundreds of millions of dollars a day uh, to you know to to try to these. That's what these blockades are doing. And if you add a U.S. Marine occupation to that, you're just adding. Uh, from an economic perspective, you're simply adding more hundreds of millions of dollars of costs to it every day. Maybe you'll get the thing running for a little while, but the costs will continue to go up. So the the cost of war 
is something that the kind of neoconservative side of these debates can never really come to grips with. The last point is related to that. The last point I wanted to make was just that it's what's interesting to me about this kind of colonialism is that how hard it is to let go of it even in, for Canadian elites, even in the face of these tremendous economic losses that nobody's, we've, we haven't seen figures for them, but I'm sure they're astronomical. And in the face of losing this, this much money every day, they are holding out and insisting that this pipeline go ahead exactly as it's planned. And I, I also learned as I was researching that, that the Wet'suwet'en actually proposed alternative routes for that pipeline. So this is all happening because the coastal gas company wants to insist on this route, particular route through the sacred and ecologically sensitive territories that the Wet'suwet'en have said they cannot tolerate a pipeline going through. And so in order to maintain this, they're willing to suffer these losses. And that tells me that it's, it's, it's more a question of like the settler colonial identity and that these this kind of finger wagging about the rule of law is ultimately about racism and colonialism even more than than profits and supply chains not that it's so canada's in a pickle canada's in a pickle it's a remarkable set of circumstances that don't show any sign of ending this might be episode two of this but it doesn't appear to be the last one this looks like, you know, the beginning of some sort of protracted struggle, for sure. And, you know, meanwhile, other Indigenous movements are are sending their solidarity to the Wet'suwet'en and, and all the blockades. A couple of days ago, Palestinian civil society groups sent a, a message of solidarity saying, you know, basically that, like, this is all one struggle. This is an anti-colonial struggle that stretches from you know, native lands to in North America to Palestine. It's really, um, I don't know. It's, uh, it's, it's wonderful to see. And it's, I'm, I'm a little afraid of, of how the colonial governments are going to react if the supply chain remains blocked by indigenous communities, because we've seen this before, obviously. And these raids are getting more and more vicious by the RCMP. following the story for you here on The Brief. That was The Brief with John Elmer, Justin Podor, and me, Nora Barrows-Friedman. You can hear us once a month on your favorite podcast provider or bi-weekly by subscribing at patreon.com slash The Brief. The Brief is co-produced by Pierre Loisel, John Elmer, Justin Podor, and me, Nora Barrows-Friedman. Music by Greg Wilson. Follow us on Twitter at The Brief Pod.